Hello and welcome to the Catapult High Performance Podcast. This podcast is a Catapult initiative created to serve as a learning and development tool for performance practitioners. We'll be sharing the latest sports science research, user stories and best practices, and stories of positive social impact that stem from sport itself. We are committed to delivering world-class support to help you improve the performance of your athletes and your team. So join us in the biggest performance community in elite sport for a journey of collective development. Hi everyone and welcome to the 14th episode of the Catapult High Performance Podcast. Hope you're all doing well. In this episode, Catapult sports scientist Kieran Howe talks with John Paul Sear, or JP. Uh, John Paul is the National Rugby League's Football Technology Manager, so really interesting one here. In this episode of the podcast, JP and Kieran discuss the benefits of the Catapult NRL league-wide deal, specifically touching on how the data that can be derived from all of the NRL's 16 clubs can help to drive key strategic decisions around health, performance, competition scheduling, and things like talent pathway developments. Uh, Some really interesting stuff in here, so kick back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Hi everybody, welcome to another Catapult podcast. My name is Kieran Howell and I'm a sports scientist with Catapult. Today's episode, we've got John Paul Kaya joining us. He is the football technology manager for the National Rugby League here in Australia. And today's episode, we're going to go through uh, a lot of things from a league-wide perspective. So looking at data sets from multiple clubs, as opposed to traditional sports scientists that might be embedded within clubs and just looking at their own um, individual data sets. So something a little bit different. Um, JP, thanks for joining us, mate. How are you doing? Good, mate. Um, thanks for having me. Thanks to Catapult for um, giving me the opportunity to, to talk some some sports science today and, and share a bit of my experience in, in my current role as, as well as some of the things I've learned um, in previous roles and, and through my studies. No, I appreciate it, mate. Thanks for jumping on. So just to start, mate, why don't you give us a, a bit of a background on yourself, um, how you've ended up in the role that you currently are in uh, and what sort of led you to that yep uh okay so i'll give a, a really quick summary um without getting too far back and boring um the listeners um so I'll, I'll start at the beginning so roughly probably 10 years ago now i was lucky enough to spend the last year of my undergraduate degree embedded uh, as an intern at the, the carlton football club which is obviously a team in the afl um and that was largely in a gym and in a physical performance setting um and that was probably my first taste of working within a professional sport environment um, I spent a year there um, in a part-time basis and that led to me completing my honours with, with the footy club, um, which sort of sparked my interest in research uh, and specifically applied research. Uh, from there, I thought it would be a good idea to head over to the US and sort of just expand my boundaries a little bit. Um, and over at University of Memphis, I did a, a master's degree in exercise and sports science and, and largely in a research and teaching capacity. Um, and that was a wonderful experience from a professional but also a personal perspective. Um, it was an invaluable two years. Uh, I learned a lot about the research project uh, process, um, working under a few professors over there. At the end of that um, two-year degree, I-, I wanted to come back to Australia for, for obvious reasons, um, and a PhD was being offered uh, by University of Queensland, where I was going to be embedded um, with Brisbane Broncos, who are a rugby league club um, in the NRL, obviously. Um, I was fortunate enough to get that, um, but then spent three years uh, with the Broncos slash UQ, not get a PhD in sleep and performance in rugby league athletes uh, while being embedded full-time at the Bronx uh, in a sports science capacity. 
Um, and then at the end of 2018, when I was pretty close to submitting the PhD, um, I was um, looking around for jobs, basically, and, and a position was being advertised at the NRL. Um, and I applied and I was, I was lucky enough to get it. So um, I've been in the role now for close to 18 months, maybe a little bit over. Um, so the NRL, for those who don't know, is, is obviously the governing body of, of rugby league in Australia. Um, we run a number of, of competitions, Telstra Premiership, State of Origin, um, women's competitions. Um, and within that governing body, I sit within the, the footy department um, and I'm, I'm sort of have a broad role amongst sort of football strategy and research. Um, and it's a pretty wide ranging role, but essentially it's a combination of, of sort of data management, sports science, data science, uh, research and, and innovation. That's a good summary, mate. <laughs> um, why don't you expand upon that current role for us in a little bit more detail? I'm sure a lot of the people listening have probably had their own experiences within Clubland and, and have their view of, I guess, sports science within their own individual clubs. Um, so why don't you just talk us through the role that you are currently doing in a bit more detail and how that, I guess, differs from how it did when you were in Clubland at either the Broncos or, or at Carlton as well? Yeah, so I guess in... Um, in comparison to a traditional sports science role at a, at a, at a footy club, um, regardless of what sport, uh, I'm certainly not practicing hands-on sports science day-to-day, um, sort of seven days a week, and getting my hands dirty as much as you would if you're working for a club. And to be honest, I do miss that at times. Um, there's been some opportunities in, in the role that I currently hold where I've had a, a chance to do some stuff with our rep teams, and, and that's been thoroughly uh, enjoyable. Um, in terms of what the role is now, it, as I said, it's sort of a combination of, of data science, sports science, um, providing insights, and then a combination of both research and innovation. So essentially, as a governing body, uh, we get asked to, access to or, or collect a number of different data sets relating to the game, and then it's, it's one of my responsibilities to, to manage all that data. So whether it's you know, databasing data coming through to us, whether it's um, using that data to tell stories for our decision makers across, across the governing body, uh, whether that's sharing that data back with the clubs, um, whether that's using that data to drive decisions about how the game's being played or, or how the game looks in, in future years. It's a combination of all those things. And then tying into that, there's a sort of a, a relationship building or a business aspect to the role as well. So um, we're a competition. We have 16 clubs competing in the NRL, for example. It's really important for us um, to have a, real, a strong relationship with those clubs. So it's... It's making sure that we're doing all we can as a governing body to support those clubs, um, whether that's advice, whether that's trying to help them in, in their systems or processes, whether it's just having a listen to what they're doing day to day and trying to learn for them. Um, it's a combination of all, all those things. Yeah, it's really interesting, mate. I think, um, you know, we've spoken about evidence-based practice on this podcast before and you know, the importance of that and how it's fairly embedded within Australia and how we do things in sport here. Um, within sports science is obviously a move towards you know, collecting bigger data sets, you know, more um, epidemiological studies across multiple clubs and, you know, um, sports sometimes and, and teams, of course. So um, I guess you're in a new, unique position, therefore, to be able to drive some of that research and move the, I guess, the industry forward almost in a way by having exposure to larger data sets from a league-wide perspective. Um, what data are you guys specifically i guess collecting day to day what sort of things are you guys interested in at a league level yep. um, in terms of collecting from the clubs yeah so i can talk to each of those i think you made a really good point there mate in terms of um 
I do consider myself pretty fortunate. I know the, the guys that I work with are the same in terms of um, we're in a pretty unique position in terms of we're getting access to league-wide data. Um, if you're working, if we go back to your previous question around the differences between working uh, for a club or working for a governing body, obviously, if you're working for a club, you obviously have access to your own data. Um, if you've got a colleague or a couple of colleagues that um, you know quite well at another club, there is the potential as always to, to share data. But, you know, at most, you might get a couple of clubs data combined for some, some internal research or from publishable research perhaps, but we're in the situation where we have league-wide data sets, which when you talk about it from an actual uh, research perspective, obviously it gives a lot more validity to the data um, and it gives us a greater confidence in the decisions we make. So um, to answer your question, um, the obvious one is GPS. So um, we get from all clubs their GPS data from matches um, following each round. So they generously share that data back with us, which we're very grateful for. Um, so we get the summary data, so you know, total total distances, workloads, et cetera, but we also get the 10 hertz sensor data, which is the stuff we're obviously really interested in. Um, we can look at positional-based stuff. Um, we can do some cool stuff um, alongside that data with the notational data. Um, so that, that GPS data is a data set that I manage. Um, some other data sets that we collect as a, as a competition, um, although I don't sit directly over these data sets, um, there is some relevance to my role. So we get um, stats data, so we have a provider that essentially codes events during matches for every match, so things like tackles, line breaks, um, hit-ups, any kind of score involvement. So it's, it's pretty, pretty wide-ranging that the data we get from an event perspective. Um, we have injury data, so clubs share both their training and match data with us. Um, and then finally, um, a big one for us is HIA data, so head injury assessment, that stands for. So essentially, anything concussion-related, which, you know, if you look across any sport at the moment, um, across the world, that obviously is becoming more and more important to get an understanding of, of what is happening in the concussion space. Um, so they're probably the big four that we, we collect on a, on a week-in, week-out basis. Yeah, nice. It's, it's interesting. Um, and how, I guess, willing are the clubs to share that sort of data? I think, um, again, it's, it's kind of a unique perspective that you're in. You've obviously got clubs that are trying to explore their own you know, anecdotal assumptions and produce research that might give them the one up, I guess, over their competition. You know, that's, that's always the premise for doing that sort of research. But how often, or well, how happy, I guess, are they to share that data with you guys um, to explore those more um, bigger picture research ideas, I guess? Yeah, um, very, in a, in a, in a short answer, um, which is encouraging. I think um, it gets back to what I was talking about before and it comes back to probably two things. So the first thing is having relationships with those individuals. Um, and if you have strong relationships between the clubs and the governing body, then um, the willingness to share data is, is, is there basically. Um, and then just as important is sort of providing value back. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, and sort of the example I give when people ask me this, this kind of question is, um, when I worked in Clubland, one of the things that, that frustrated me, um, and I've said this openly, so I'm not saying it any controversial, um, is that we as a club um, and me as an individual would share data back to um, the NRL as a governing body. Um, and we were willing to do so because we saw the potential benefit for everyone involved. Um, but I became very frustrated and less willing to cooperate when there was very little value going back. So we would you know, send our data in, we'd get to the end of the year and sort of put our hands in the air and say, what was the point of that? Where was the value for us? So um, when I came into the role and certainly something I've continued to work to do while being in the role is making sure we're providing value back to the clubs. So the systems we set up um, 
make it as easy as possible for the clubs to get their data to us. And obviously, you know, from a GPS perspective, Catapult plays a part in that. Um, but we make sure that we're regularly reporting stuff back to the clubs. We're asking the questions on what types of, of answers they want. Um, if there's major research projects, they get um, a chance to submit their ideas, for example, on, on how we're going to use those data sets to answer the questions that are of interest, not only to us as a governing body, but also to the club. So I think when you combine those two things together, if you have you know, the strong relationships, the, the constant dialogue, um, in combination with the, the value, clubs sort of see the light, if you like, um, see the value in it, and it, it makes the cooperation process really easy on, on our end. Yeah, I think what um, if you're able to share, what kind of questions do you find um, coming from the clubs in relation to sort of research questions that they're trying to, I guess, answer from a, um, a perspective with having more data um, from other clubs? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's, it, there's, there's plenty and, and they're numerous um, in, in quantity. Um, I think if we talked in, in really broad strokes, um, all clubs and you know, we've got 16 clubs. We also have our LPA who look after the, the players essentially. So they're the players association. We essentially we want to get an understanding of, of things like workloads and demands on the players. And we can obviously use that information for a number of different reasons, be it scheduling, be it competition structure. Um, we also want to understand those sort of moments in a match that might lead potentially to injury. So again, we can probably do that with you know a single club's data set, but the ability to do that over the course of a season with a, a a large data set is much more valuable to us. So probably then feeds into that health and welfare aspect of the game. So they're probably the key to, so it's, a, it's about understanding what the game looks like, um, what parts of the game or moments in a game are potentially um, risky for players and athletes. Um, and then there's always that pathways side of things. So whether it's talent ID and uh, the best way to maximize you know, playing roster, all those kinds of questions. So, um, I know that that's probably three really broad areas, but um, without going to really detailed specifics, they're probably the, the three the three major areas. Yeah, interesting. Um, and then you also touched on you know providing evidence or data back to clubs in in order to get more buy-in from them. Um, what sort of data are the clubs asking to to receive back? Is there a lot of a lot of synergy between clubs, or is it is it something generic that you provide back? Um, maybe if you just want to expand upon that. Yeah, so from a reporting perspective, we typically um, we, we do a mid-season report, um, an end-of-season report, which go into um, to detail around some of the workloads around um, competition demands um, in terms of whether that's consistent across clubs and what they want to see. It largely is. Um, what, we, what we try and do is canvas the clubs on what they want to see or, you know, we might give them an understanding of what we're going to do, but also give them the opportunity to sort of raise some points they want to see and then we, we tie in with that. So... We look at um, benchmarks across positional groups. Um, we look at how certain players in the competition who are acknowledged to be sort of better players in air quotes um, compare versus sort of average NRL players, which again is we come back to talent ID and, and understanding um, what the better players across the competition are doing. That data becomes really, really valuable for, for the clubs um, in terms of how they compose their roster and playing squad. Um, but yeah, so we send out a mid-season report and end-season report and then there's been a number of times when we have ad hoc stuff go out. Um, so if, if Club X asks us to do something, we're, we're more than happy to oblige. But then what we do is obviously share it with that club but share it with the rest of the competition as well. So no one's getting a competitive advantage, if you like. 
And how far um, down the road with that talent mapping process have, have you and the clubs gone through? Like, is it a, at a point where you're starting to marry that GPS data up against other notational data like you sort of touched on earlier? Or is it still pretty um, standalone, I guess, in terms of the sort of data that they're looking at? Yeah, so historically, uh, no question it's been, um, certainly from a league-wide perspective, I can't talk to what's going on at 16 clubs, but historically, yes, um, those two data sets have lived um, independent of each other. Um, in saying that, we've, um, myself and another, um, another guy I work with in our team have, have just gone through a, a rather large process with a data partner of ours um, to essentially automate the merging of those two data sets. So um, given the magnitude of the amount of data we're talking about um, from both data sets and getting those to line up um, is quite um, a substantial piece of work. So that's taken some some real work on our end. Um, and in a way, the, probably the one positive of the pandemic from our perspective is that it's given us some time to, to look at that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got it to a point now where essentially um, that 10 hertz sensor data we have, so for example, we just finished round 15, we'd have that data by Tuesday, Wednesday, and, and we can have that merged by the, you know, the end of the week, essentially. So um, that's really exciting for us. Um, that's essentially phase one, which is, is getting those data sets merged. The more sexier and exciting part is now what do we do with it and how do we start to use it? Um, part of that as well is, and this comes back to the value piece, is providing that data back to clubs. So we know that there's a number of clubs already doing that across the competition, which is fantastic. But if we can do that for them, um, again, that's providing value back to the clubs. Um, it allows them to then use that time to do some other piece of analysis that they perhaps don't have the time for. Um, so again, positive feedback for the clubs allows us to do some analysis going forward. Um, and it's been a big process, but it's something we're, we're, we're really proud of. Yeah, I think it's a massive one. I think we always talk about obviously making data more meaningful, um, which can be done by in a, a lot of different ways and, and obviously creating norms and, and making relative comparisons and things like that. But to really give that, you know, physical workload data, some context against the notational data is a, is a massive one. So, um, yeah, and I think, sorry to jump in, mate. I think too, it's, it's something we've always spoken about internally in my time here, and, and I go back to my time at the Bronx as well, in terms of the GPS data is great, and I'm, I'm sure anyone listening to this um, will understand what I'm talking about, but it doesn't define football performance, in air quotes. Um, you know, we can get a, a fullback or a hooker to, to run 10Ks a game. It has... Um, no direct correlation with how they perform uh, from a football perspective. So um, pairing that GPS data at the sensor level with the notational data uh, and get an understanding of how that GPS data relates to some of those match events at the 10 hertz level is, is much more um, sexy for us and will give us much better insights going forward. Yeah, definitely agree. Do you feel like it'll translate as well into... I guess, improving that buy-in from, from coaches as well in terms of this sort of technology. Like I think in the past, if I think about even myself, you know, giving GPS reports from matches to coaches and, and people like that within the organisation, they have this perception that, that more is better, right? The more high-speed running that the player did, that's a, that's, a good, that's a good sign, you know, as opposed to what it's probably more reflective of and, and that's the team potentially losing on the scoreboard and they're chasing tail or you've got players that are out of position and trying to get back into position and, and using more high-speed metres when they don't need to. So 
Um, yeah. I think the perception there, again, in that it's it's better to have more, <laughs> but sometimes less is less is more um, and better as well. So maybe coupling it with that notational data might help coaches, I guess, perceive um, this sort of technology differently as well. Yeah, no, I agree. And we've got a pretty, I can only speak to rugby league because that's what I've been immersed in, in in the last five years, but I'm sure it applies to other team sports. But if you look at rugby league um, and some of the uniqueness of the game, if you look at things like defensive structure, the defensive line, things that lead to line breaks um, and that breakdown between um, a team trying to defend their own goal line, like those, those are the kinds of things that we can better understand with um, the sensor data merged with the, the notational data. So whether it's the, the gap between the two markers, the, the gap between the A and the B defender, and I'm going deep rugby league here, but those are the kinds of things you're right in what you're saying in terms of um, they will be of significant interest to the coaches. Um, mm-hmm. And in, in terms of buy-in and value and all those things, absolutely, I, could, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Do you think we'll get to the point where between clubs you'll be able to assess things like line speed, and things like that that go a bit more granular with that notational data? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it logically, absolutely. Um, you know, I think back to, to my time um, working at club learning rugby league, that was always a big thing that we banged on about. Um, and it, it's if you watch any rugby league broadcast, um, you won't have to wait too long before a, a comments person talks about line speed and the impact that's having on a, on a team's performance on the day. So absolutely, those, it's, it's, as I was talking about before, Getting a, a better understanding of those important moments in our game is something that is um, invaluable, and it, it, they're all things that we've probably spoken about anecdotally for a long time. But the ability to quantify that using data is 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 invaluable. So line speed's one. If you think about a kick chase, it's the same thing, right? So the difference between the team that um, you know goes as hard as possible in a kick chase versus the team that sort of meanders uh, along. Again, they're things we've been able to sort of look at anecdotally for a long time but the ability to do so with with the precision we're now able to do is 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 super important and um and then you sort of touched on it before in terms of um using then obviously this sort of information of feedback to the clubs trying and obviously clubs are trying to improve their own performance but then how would you know measuring i guess gps and having that notational data pairing it lead to um changes at your end as a as a league in terms of scheduling rule changes, would that sort of data help drive those decisions as well? Yeah, potentially. So we, just to give some context, so all of that GPS data uh, as long, uh, alongside the, the injury data, the stats data, um, the HIA data. So we share that uh, internally to, you know, essentially the people that sit above us, but also we have a number of um, different committees, uh, committees in the business. So we have a, a workloads and balance, for example, that, um, contains NRL people, but also uh, representatives from the RLPA, um, from Clubland. Um, and what those committees do is essentially discuss the how the game's going as a, as a broad sort of scope um, and make decisions based on things like, like you mentioned, season structure, how much time we need to give players off um, through the competition period, um, how much time we need to give players off during the off-season periods, um, how that affects players that play at ref footy both during the year and at the end of the year. Um, so, yeah, but the more information we can have to, to help those guys make decisions is it's a massive win for us. Um, we always talk about the fact that if we're making decisions, we want to do so in a, in a formal manner. Um, and the best way to do that is to have you know, really um, sophisticated data at, at the back end. But when we present it to people, it needs to um, 
be done so in a, in a really simple manner so they can understand what it means. Um, so yes, absolutely, that 10 hertz data alongside the stats data will help us, but obviously we're not going to you know, take that to a committee and, and try and bamboozle them with all the numbers. It's about us making sense of that and then providing the insights to, to, to people like that that are making decisions or committees that are making decisions as a group. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as well. Like I think, um, you know, if I think back when there's been rule changes within rugby league or any other sport, like it, it feels like a lot of those decisions are made from a competition standpoint to make the team's, you know, performance, I guess, closer, you know, so we've got a much more even competition. Um, whereas it's good to see some of this now data being used to make informed decisions about, you know, I guess, player welfare and how do we keep our, our players fit and healthy um, and on the, on, on the park, which is, Ultimately, what's going to improve um, interest from the from the audience seeing those sort of players well and performing instead of being out injured. So, yeah, and there's a there's a balance there, um, and we've had some some publicised rule changes this year. So, I, I guess the balance that I talk to is it's it's about obviously the welfare of the players, which is obviously the utmost um, importance to us as a competition. Um, so, it's about protecting those players. Um, so, if you go back over the in the past decade, we've made a number of rule changes long before I was working for the NRL, but if you think about things like, you know, the impact of concussions, et cetera. So things like shoulder charges have been outlawed from the game. So there's the element there of we'll, we'll change rules to protect players' welfare um, and their health, but we'll also change rules potentially to, um, to fix the product or to improve the product. Um, so the person at home who might think that the game is going in a direction they don't want to potentially, um, what can we do as a game to make it as, as exciting and as, as viewable for the the viewer at home or in the stands to um, keep turning on or keep turning up to the stadium. And that's, you know, that's not unique to rugby league. We've seen that in the AFL, for example. Um, I'm sure that's consistent across most sports. Um, so, you know, again, having the, the ability to have data to back up those decisions and to give us greater confidence in the decisions we're making is, is really critical throughout the whole process. Yeah, definitely. And then obviously having data as well on the back of those changes when they do come in uh, to support whether or not they're working or not. So, um, you just touched on the rule changes that have have occurred. Um, can you just, I guess, explain a bit more detail what they were um, and then if you're seeing any changes within the data um, that reflects those changes? Yep. Uh, so, um, so post round two, which is essentially, so the competition shut down for the pandemic following round two and then we restarted um, about two months later, roughly. So in between that stand down period, um, we went from two referees to one referee, which doesn't have a huge impact on, on the playing side of things. Um, but that was the first major um, rule change. And the second one was uh, what's labelled the six again rule. So um, anyone who's watched the game this year would have seen um, the impact that's had on the game. So essentially, um, all that means is if the defensive team, whilst defending the attacking team, is um, trying to slow down the, the ruck or the play the ball, um, as opposed to that being a a penalty, which it would have been previously in the game stopping. Um, the referee essentially resets the tackle count and there's another six tackles. Um, and we're seeing somewhere between, and I'm, I'm sort of making up the numbers here, but somewhere between five to 15 of those uh, incidents a match, which, which has led to essentially um, more time where the ball is in play, which is exactly what we want to do to uh, maximise you know, um, the time the ball is actually in play as opposed to being out of the field of play, game stopped, we're waiting around to restart the game. So um, that's a really positive outcome, but it has had um, substantial effects on, on the way the game's being played. And, and we thought that would be the case um, anecdotally. Um, if you looked at the game following round two, it, it certainly looked that it was a higher speed game. 
um, the players look more fatigued, etc. Um, and we've started to look at what that has meant from a GPS perspective. So comparing the first two rounds of the season versus the competition restart, um, and we've shared this data back with the club, so I'm not revealing any secrets, but it, it's roughly a, a 5 to 10% increase across all the GPS data. So whether you're looking at uh, basic workload, so distance travelled and distance travelled across um, speed thresholds, um, you're looking at around a 5 to 10% to increase across all positional groups. Um, and then when you look at some of those um, intensity metrics um, and the speed demands and the acceleration demands, it's, it's in the same sort of um, range. So again, 5 to 10% increase across all position groups. So clearly that's had a substantial impact on the way the game's been played. Um, and it's clearly taken some time for the, the 16 teams to adjust to those rules. Um, it will be interesting to see... Um, assuming those rule changes stay in for the 2021 season, um, how teams adapt through the, the off-season period and the pre-season period and how they prepare their athletes to uh, make sure they're ready to um, play 80 minutes of rugby league under those conditions. Because if, um, if you look at it from afar, certainly it looks like some teams were better prepared for those uh, rule changes than others. So it, it will be fascinating to see in the off-season how things potentially change. Yeah, it's really interesting and I'm sure you know, those changes being what they are now and, and coming across that sort of data is, is really important for teams. But I'm sure at this point, it hasn't really translated into a change in, in training, um, essentially. And I guess one of the ways to be able to see that from a league's perspective would be that training data. Um, has there been any appetite from teams or, or do you think it's, there's ever a case where they're willing to share that sort of training data from a day-to-day um, as opposed to just matches? You mean the GPS data? Yeah, well, I guess GPS and or I'm, I'm assuming injury data is collected through the week and, and things like that, but um, probably workload data. Yeah, so I think as a game, we, we'd love to. Um, it, it becomes a... If we were to take that data on it, it would become a, a real logistical challenge. Um, having to deal with the weekly GPS data is, is substantial enough, to be, to be honest, and that's a lot of data given the fact that we've got... 16 clubs and um, eight matches a weekend, um, that data adds up really quickly. In terms of the training data, it would potentially give us really valuable insights. Um, and we may get to that point at some point in the future. Um, I'm sure there would be, we've never had the, the formal discussions with the clubs about getting access to that data. I'm sure there would be probably some resistance around that. Um, I think there would be some clubs that would be more than happy to do so. Um, I think there'd be some clubs that would perhaps not want to, you know, give away their, their secret herbs and spices of, of what they're doing at training. Um, I, in saying that, I'm not sure the, the type of training that's being done across the 16 clubs is that different that it would really give away competitive advantage, but I, I do understand the, um, the fears around that. Um, so I'm not sure if I've really answered your question. Um, it would be interesting um, I, I don't know if we're going to get there anytime soon, um, but it would certainly be a massive part of the jigsaw puzzle. Um, we've got all the match data, which is really interesting. If we could get access to the training data, that would be interesting as well. But it, as I said at the start, it would um, it would create logistical um, challenges that we would have to work through. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. And just, um, you know, obviously where the NRL is already in terms of centralising data, even from a match perspective, it's very advanced. If I think about other leagues around the world and um, and other sports as well, it's it's moving in a really exciting direction, and I think uh, 
you know, the obvious question is where to go from there in terms of other data. How do we paint, you know, a more complete picture? And that obviously comes into the training data as well. Um, there's, of course, a hesitation from clubs um, around that data sometimes. But I think even in that space where, as far as Australian sport goes, we're moving in a good direction where people are a lot more transparent with their data. I think, um, you know, back to my time in Clubland, you kind of, like you say, you're collecting your data, you're doing things in a certain way, um, your reporting systems are set up in certain ways and you think that you are, um, you know, doing something maybe secretive and special. But when you take your head out of that and and see um, from a perspective of what everyone's doing, um, there's a lot of synergies there and and people are doing a lot of the same things. So um, I think as people get their head around that, there's less reluctance to share that data and it, it may put us in a really great position to be able to create a blueprint, I guess, moving forward. And that's, you know, from an NRL or, or other leagues in this country as well as to how other people might, you know, go about centralizing these league-wide data sets. And then obviously the advantage for that for teams far outweighing the, the negatives of sharing anything. I think it's, a, it's a, I completely agree. And I, you touched on something there, which is just something to think. I think with the training data, if we were to go down that path, what we'd have to do is um, almost start from the end and work back. We would have to have a really good understanding of what we're going to do with the training data. Um, and sell is too strong of a word, but we would need to explain that to the clubs. Um, this is the overall objective and this is how we're going to get there. And to do that, we're going to need you to cooperate and um, supply your training data. I think if we just went to, and we would never do this, of course, if we just went to the clubs and said, give us your training data, we'd sort of get laughed out of the room. So, um, you know, it's, it's one for us. If it's something we want to do in the future, we need to get an understanding of what the overall objective is. We don't want to just be taking in more data for the sake of it. Um, you need a direct objective um, and you need to be able to tell the story both internally, but then also to the clubs of, of this is the bigger picture. This is why it'll be a value to you. And this is why it would be the sort of the value of the overall game, uh, which if we could do that in a manner that, um, that really is valuable for them, I think that's where the resistance would, would drop from those clubs. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. I think even um, if I put my catapult hat on and think about it from our perspective, I think we've, made a conscious effort to start trying to engage our teams as well in the discussion more from you know a product standpoint where we take things and as you say really you know showing them under the hood and okay this is the rationale for developing this feature or whatever it is um, and really trying to provide that context of the end case um, product as opposed to producing something ethereal um, that we may or may not execute on um, yeah. Are really, you know, pulling teams or stakeholders into the conversation, really helping them, you know, bring some ownership into it as well by by showing them things in more detail um, as an end case scenario, as opposed to just going as you say and give me your training data. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, interesting. So, what about the future? I guess of this sort of data collection from your perspective. I guess we've, I guess, talked on it in a little bit of detail there with the training data, but is there other um, avenues that you think this sort of um, centralization of, of data will go to in the, in the future? Yeah. Um, to, to be brutally honest, I have no idea. And I don't say that flippantly. I think, um, how do I put this? I think the landscape of, of professional sport has been disrupted so much by the events of 2020 that um, for me to try and give any certainty of, of um, what will 
what things will look like internally here or across sport in general is is would be pure guessing. I think if you think about, I was thinking about this the other day, if you think about the overall objectives of us, for example, aggregating the GPS data, so what about things like um, cost savings, so economies of scale, um, trying to get more bargaining power, uh, power when you're talking to suppliers, et cetera. Those things are still, in theory, um, relevant post-pandemic um, and perhaps even more so than they were previously. Um, I can certainly talk to us internally. We certainly see the value of, of centralised data. I think the clubs do as well. Um, but I just think at the moment there's so many things in the air in terms of what um, professional sport's going to look like, what... Um, what our competition is going to look like going forward. Um, I, I would love to say, yes, this is something that's going to continue to evolve and grow and we're going to see more data here and, and um, we're going to get training data, for example. We're going to have um, this, this um, access to such data for a long period of time, but um, I don't know. Um, and, and whether we go back to more traditional models, um, sort of, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and no, that's... It's interesting, and I think you touched on, um, you know, the current situation in COVID-19 just then in, in a little bit of detail, but um, what sort of learnings, I guess, from this whole experience have you had more, I guess, grand scheme of things, even even small little golden nuggets that you might have for us, but um, what's it, you know, the situation, I guess, taught you um, with the data that you're, you're collecting, you know, the way that you guys are going about things as, as a league, as, as COVID-19 yeah, brought up any, I guess, um, learnings or experiences that you would that you'd share with anyone. Yeah, I think I think in the fullness of time, I think we'll sit back at the end of the twenty twenty season when we finish the the competition, but also then the Origin period, which will take place at the end of the season. I think we'll take a hell of a lot away, um, given the unique nature of, of the season. I, the way our competition is a structured, I think potentially may change um, for not forever, but. Um, from what we've traditionally seen. Um, and I think the way we potentially prepare players as well. So um, is a traditional pre-season starting in November and running all the way to March, um, is that the, in air quotes, best way to do things? Um, do we need to have three trials before the competition starts proper or can we get away with with one? Um, they're the types of things that I think we'll, we'll be able to sit back at the end of, of 2020 with all the data at hand, as well as what we've seen with their eyeballs and, and make decisions on those things. Um, to sort of touch on one of the things you asked, I, I think internally I'm really, really comfortable with the way we have been set up from, from a data perspective and a football technology perspective to deal with the pressures of the year um, and things like having an aggregated data set um, with GPS with injury, with stats, et cetera, has helped that a hell of a lot. We've been able to make decisions on the run in an informed manner. Um, so, you know, if we weren't um, in a situation where we had this set up internally, maybe we would not have been in, in the position to deal with um, the challenges of the year as we have. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, I think, across all sports, across all industries, clearly we're going to take a lot away from, from 2020 and, and um sort of take the best of our learnings and apply it to, to 2021 and onwards. And that's probably another thing too, is that, um, and not to get all deep on the pandemic here, but um, 2021 will probably still be impacted in some way. Um, whether that impacts the way the footy pl is played or competition structure or um, preparations for the 2021 season, it's probably yet to be seen, but um, certainly we're going to take learnings away from 2020 and probably apply them immediately to 2021 and then, 
excuse me, uh, potentially for some of those um, learnings, we'll take them into the beyond and, and um, yeah. No, I think, uh, to be honest, the NRL, the way that everything's been handled throughout this this year, despite the obvious challenges, has been has been really great. You know, it was obviously ambitious trying to come back from the the break from COVID, you know, like you did and sort of leading the way, I guess, for sport in the country. So, um, no, it's been... It's been really great from the outside looking in, that's for sure. I think I'll waffle um, on that one a bit, mate. <laughs> mate, I think just uh, before we go, I just want to touch on, I guess, the future of technology and sport. You've obviously got a different uh, perspective of that um, from sitting across you know, the league-wide perspective again. Um, so interested to get your thoughts on where you see, I guess, technology going, and that's not yeah, related purely to GPS. I think there's all sorts of things that we could talk about when it's technology and sport, but um, where do you see the future of that going? You know, what's missing? What gaps are there that we can um, obviously always improve on? Yeah, um, I'll be honest. I think technology uh, at times makes it um, a little bit too easy to to innovate um, without sort of questioning the real value. So, um, of course, we're going to see new technologies pop up in the next five to ten years that we'll be interested in and probably apply. But um, I think as an industry, if I'm talking from like a sports science perspective, I still think we get carried away with the, the black box or the new toy um, when we're largely still siloed in what we do. Um, so I think it's, it's to answer your question, I think how we continue to innovate and, and improve is by sort of integrating some of that data and, and using that data in a more sort of efficient manner um, and apply the, the sports science data alongside areas like you know, skill acquisition, um, cognitive science, analytics, et cetera. And obviously we're seeing some work around those, those areas coming out and probably continue to come out. So um, I think um, it's more around creating efficiencies in what we've already got. Um, and improving processes because I think we already collect a hell of a lot of data um, when we talk about sports science um, and I think a lot of what we do is, is purely at the superficial level um, so the more we can streamline processes um, use that data more efficiently and that's where I come back to you know merging data sets getting data to talk to each other be it GPS, notational injury, whatever else. So I think that's where the, the future in the short term is. And then, of course, you know, I'm sure new technology is going to come along that, that we will be looking at and playing with and, and trying to draw insights from. Yeah, great, man. I think there's already so much data sometimes, you know, coming at us from all sorts of different angles, right? You haven't sort of mastered the use of one data set before you're already trying to move on and collect the next. So, um, Correct. yeah, 100% agree. And obviously as you touched on the importance of integrating that data against other forms, you know, we, we often talk about with teams, you know, putting a spotlight on, on your program, right. You might be collecting measures X, Y, Z, but don't really have an understanding of, of what they're telling you or what they're not, you know, without comparing that to your, your recovery data, your sleep data, your injury data yeah, and, and everything else. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah. And there's that, and this is, um, you know, it's not uncommon, but there is that notion of sort of um, some will collect for the sake of collecting. Um, and, and that was always something I was big on when I was part of a club is that whatever we would be collecting needed to be actually used, be it short-term day-to-day or potentially for some longer-term pieces. But if you're just collecting data for the sake of collecting, nothing gets up my um, goat more. Um, 
there's got to be value there. Um, otherwise, you're creating inefficiencies as opposed to creating efficiencies. Yeah, and that's a very, very good point, mate, and one we might leave it on. So um, appreciate you jumping on, mate. Really, really good chat. Um, super insightful, and I'm sure a lot of people will get value from, from that. So uh, thanks for joining us, mate. Anytime, mate. Thanks for the time. Thanks, JP. As always, thanks for tuning in. That's all we've got for uh, the 14th episode of the podcast. Stay tuned for episode 15. You can also check out catapultsports.com and have a look at our blog there about recovery, sports science, and uh, other performance analytics articles. So that's catapultsports.com. Jump in and have a look. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.